please open your Bibles to Luke 17, 7 through 10. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 876. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come in at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, indeed, we are uh, unworthy servants. And Lord, uh, I confess that as I stand up here and preach that I am an unworthy servant, or literally, as it says in um, the Greek text, a useless slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help me to remember that. Help me not to become spiritually prideful. Even as I stand here and preach, I ask this in your name. Amen. You know that we boldly confess our belief in Reformed theology here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. But you may not know that we affirm with equal enthusiasm our belief in worm theology. What is worm theology? Well, Job chapter 25 verses 4 through 6 is a concise summation of worm theology. It reads, how then can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, the son of man who is a worm. Even our hymns recognize worm theology. Have you noticed worm theology when we have uh, sung, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? It's right there in the first stanza. You may have sung it. Twenty, thirty times here in this congregation and never noticed it. That first stanza, alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? You can look it up, hymn number 254. Some hymnals found it too offensive. So they changed the line to read, for such sinners, or for sinners such as I. And sadly, that became too offensive for more contemporary hymnals, and they changed the line again to read, for such a one as I. I'm glad that our Trinity hymnal has kept the, the worm theology. It is a biblical teaching. In fact, it shows up in our text this morning. So look at verse 10. 
Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, literally useless slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Even at our best, we are unworthy servants. So let's look at our passage in more detail. How does, how does our passage relate to the context? How does it relate to verses 5 and 6? Well, here's what I think is happening. The disciples had asked for greater faith in verses 5 and, or in verse 5, but Jesus corrected them by saying that greater faith was not needed, only genuine faith. If they simply had a genuine faith in their great God, they could have faith as small as a mustard seed and do powerful things for the kingdom of Christ. Jesus knew when they started doing great things, and here in the passage he talks about uprooting a mulberry tree and planting it into the middle of the sea, uh, in Mark's passage, he talks about uprooting a mountain, and he's talking uh, uh, metaphorically here. But doing great things. Jesus knew that they would be doing great things. He says they would even do things greater than he did. And so they knew, he knew that when they started doing great things, even great things for God, there would be a temptation for spiritual pride. Our flesh, the indwelling sin, is such an ugly power within us that even when we are doing things for God, uh, we use our accomplishments to puff ourselves up. It's axiomatic. When one does great things, one is susceptible to the cancer of spiritual pride. Here I am up preaching. And it's the temptation to say, I hope I impress them this morning. Hear how wicked and ugly that is? George Whitfield was America's first superstar. Everywhere uh, he traveled in England and up and down the East Coast in America preaching the gospel, large crowds would gather to hear him. It is estimated that he preached to over 10 million people between the years 1740 and 1770. And in his journals, he wrote continually about his struggle with spiritual pride because he was so sought after. People, so many crowds were coming to hear him. And he had such notoriety. And he continually had to struggle and repent of spiritual pride. Jonathan Edwards he also struggled with spiritual pride, and he continually was fighting against it. He lived during the same time as George Whitfield, and frankly, he was the greatest philosopher and theologian that America has ever produced. Uh, he labored to live a godly life in every respect, but he was such a his brain power was such that he was taking on the philosopher, the Enlightenment philosophers, on their own terms and destroying uh, their philosophy and then taking and showing from the scriptures um, 
Christian epistemology and 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 going and uh, just a brilliant theologian. For for century for the last couple of centuries, uh, people were readily saying he was the greatest American mind ever produced. Um, now that there is this uh, so-called separation between faith and science, the science um, scientists refuse to uh, recognize him. I think to all of our um, all of our hurt. But he found spiritual pride because of the notoriety that he received. Uh, he was Princeton, uh, president at Princeton um, Seminary and, and College, and he, so he had to fight uh, spiritual pride as a particularly fierce enemy. So Jesus here, in verses 7 through 10, is telling the disciples a mini-parable about the foolishness of giving in to spiritual pride. The mini-parable was quintessential teaching by Jesus. He's the master of hyperbole. The story that Jesus uh, tells would have been unthinkable in the ancient world. Basically, here's the story. He tells the story of a servant, or literally a slave, a doulos, a slave. And the slave comes uh, in from working in the fields, and he's in, and the slave is invited to sit down and enjoy a meal at the master's table. And then after dinner, the master thanked the slave for all his hard work. Well, that's not how things worked in the master-slave relationship. And let me just say here, Jesus is not endorsing slavery or teaching us to observe a class system. He's simply using an everyday situation to teach a point. Uh, it'd be like this. Imagine uh, going out to dinner uh, with your family and having the waitress say to you, You know, I have been working hard all night and I'm a terrific waitress and I'm really hungry right now. So I think I'll just sit down with you folks and eat some of your meal. Uh, you know, that's unthinkable. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. Um, only Jesus is saying it in a culture where that would be unthinkable. Times ten or times a hundred. A master was simply not going to let a slave sit down and eat with the family and then thank him for his service. Rather, the slave, after working outside in the hot sun all day, well, the slave is going to have to wait for dinner. He's first going to have to come in and he's going to have to prepare dinner for the master. Then he'll have to get up uh, or he'll have to get cleaned up, dressed properly. A little Downton Abbey vibe there. You know, he can't just uh, serve the master in his work clothes. He's got to get cleaned up and, and have the proper attire, you know, the, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a footman, and then uh, serve the master while the master eats. Only after the master finishes dinner will the hard-working slave be able to eat, and he can forget about getting any gratitude from the master. So I'll read again verses 7 through 9. 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what is commanded? And of course, the implied answer is no, absolutely not. Unthinkable. I want to go on a short rabbit trail just for a moment. One of the things that most excites me about preaching through Luke at, at a, sh- a slow pace um, is that you hopefully are learning how to read and understand Jesus for your own private Bible reading. Jesus is not some stoic professor in theology giving lectures. Uh, He has a strong sense of humor, and his teaching is more understandable than we often give him credit for, because we read him as giving a theological lecture, and when he's talking uh, using obvious hyperbole, We overlook that and uh, get confused by those things. So I want to challenge you uh, to read the chapter that I'm preaching in each week before the worship service. If you don't know what chapter, you can guess pretty because I'm going slow enough. Um, But read it before I preach it and then continue to read that passage after I've preached it. Learn Jesus' style of teaching. Make applications to your life and pray to him about those applications. Lord, this is your teaching. I want to become more like you. Help me to do so. Listen to the voice of your Savior and spend time with him. That's the essence of growing as a Christian. And so Jesus told this many parable to make a specific point which is found in verse 10. I'll read verse 10 again. Jesus says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is what uh, was our duty. We can break this, his point down into two sub-points. First, When we are serving God, we are to consider ourselves as unworthy servants. Dakota, I want to give you just a, you have, it has been a joy to watch you grow as you are leading the congregation in worship and so much, so comfortable in front of the congregation. But Dakota, you're a, you're an unworthy servant, (laughs) right? We, when we are serving God, we are to consider ourselves as unworthy servants. We are to consider ourselves in light of the slave in Jesus' parable in verses 7 through 9. No matter how hard we work for God, no matter how many great things we do for his kingdom, God does not owe us anything, not even his gratitude. Sadly, many Christians take the approach that all the things that they do for God amounts to something. So then they expect God to do his duty in return and to bless them in proportion to their work and their service for him. 
That's how the Pharisees approached God. God was so lucky to have such dedicated followers. Here's where I think we often fall into the same trap as Christians. You know, we love God. We love his kingdom. We're always doing something to serve God. But when bad things happen in our lives, a, a sickness or the death of a loved one or some accident befalls us, we begin to complain, God, I have devoted myself to, to serving Christ. I have sacrificed so much. I deserve better than this. All I've done, and God has not rewarded me, but has given me a hard life. Can you see how that is 180 degrees out of phase with what Jesus is teaching his disciples here in verses 7 through 10? See, the truth is, God does not owe us anything. That's the unavoidable point of this passage. And if this sounds harsh, it is because in our self-righteous pride, we think that we really have done something for God for which he should repay us. I want to tell you about John Patton, the, uh, the great missionary uh, to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. He was born in 1824. Uh, he was born in a devoted Scottish Presbyterian family in Scotland. He came to Christ at an early age by observing his, his father, who went into his prayer closet, his, his, whatever that means. He may have gone out walking uh, in prayer, but he did. this was his practice. Three times a day, his father would go out and seek the face of God. And then uh, his father conducted the family in family worship twice a day. And this made a tremendous impact on John Patton as he grew up in this family. He grew up with such a burning desire to preach the gospel to peoples who had not yet heard about Jesus. And in 1854, at the age of 30, he was ordained in the Presbyterian Church. And the next month, he got married. Fourteen days later, he and his new bride left for the New Hebrides, uh, and a group of islands in the South Pacific. And as it would have done back in the uh, 1800s, it took quite a while for them to get there. Three months after arriving, his wife gave birth to their first child. But 19 days later, his wife died of tropical fever. And then 17 days later, after his wife died, his newborn son died. And he buried them in the same grave. And he would sleep on top of the grave every night to protect them, to protect his, his uh, wife and his child from the local cannibals. If we had time, I could go on to continue uh, and outline unspeakable hardships that God allowed to happen to John Patton. But before John Patton died, the whole island of Anawa, the island that he was ministering on, by and large had become Christian, had converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cannibals 
turned to the Lord Jesus. And in that island chain, I think there were 30 islands in the, the, uh, in the island group uh, that make up New Hebrides. 25 of those islands had missionary outposts on them and were well established. Why would God allow these tragedies to befall John Patton? when John Patton had dedicated his life to God? Why did God not honor his sacrifices by keeping his family from harm? God has his own agenda and purposes. We are not privy to why God does what he does. He is the master, and he is pursuing his agenda, and we are but his servants. We know everything that he does is good. We know he works to get all things together for our good, even if it brings us pain, even if we cannot understand it. And this brings us to the second sub-point from verse 10. When we have done everything that God has commanded us to do, we've only done our duty. God is not moved by our obedience. Remember Isaiah 64, verse 6? All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or like dirty rags. None of our best works, or even if you put all of our good works together, all of that gives us, um, none, all of that gives us no merit before God. You know, a lot of people think that they're, they've got their, their trunk of good works that they're going to bring up to heaven with them. And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And they throw open their, their big trunk of good works. And all God sees are a chest full of polluted garments. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our redeemer. Therefore, he has a right to all our allegiance, to all our obedience. Even if we gave God perfect service, we would only be doing our duty. Let me read verse 10 one more time. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You know, talk about all our good works, even our best works collected together. We've never given God our best. Our best is always deeply flawed. We've never done all that we could do. We are sinners. Sadly, we are given to spiritual pride when we've imperfectly done anything for God. In verse 10, Jesus is driving his disciples towards humility in their faith and in their service for God. When we obey God, we have only done what we as faithful servants should do. This humble attitude gives all the glory to God where it belongs. Remember Jeremy's sermon a few weeks back from James 4, 14 through 17? James says, What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Please do not, un- um, do not misunderstand. I am not presenting a harsh view of God. Rather, Christ is bringing us face to face with our gloriously big God who is worthy of our trust and our worship. We cannot redefine God into something refashioned after our own image or our own desires. We can't bring him down to our level. God is incredibly kind and gracious to us as servants. Otherwise, we wouldn't be saved. Otherwise, we could do no good thing. Jesus says, without me, you can do no good thing. Um, his love and his care is not, for us, is not rooted in what we do or who we are. His love and his care for us is rooted in his own loving and caring and generous and merciful character. Not in our performance, not in our obedience. So there's no room for boasting because even our faith and our obedience are gifts from God. We cannot think of our obedience as as a gift from to God, but rather a gift from God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every good work that you have ever done for God is God's grace at work in you. You can take credit for nothing. At the end of the day, we are worthless servants. Even with all our imperfect and flawed obedience, even with all our struggles with spiritual pride because of our flawed obedience, even with a long trail of rebellious sins, God still accepts our obedience and recognizes our service for him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus will tell us on the day of judgment, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. God is so gracious to us unworthy worms. God says we are faithful. He says we uh, have are good and faithful servants. 
Jesus says here, I just want to be very clear. He says this is what, in verse 10, this is what we say about ourselves. God rejoices in us, but we should see ourselves as unworthy, as worm-like even, because humility is so very important. One more very short but important important point, and then we are done. We are only able to give any service to God or to have even a relationship with him because Jesus did what that earthly master would think was unthinkable. Uh, in the many parable, the, the master would not allow the servant at the table with him. Our Lord Jesus left the glory of heaven to make himself the servant of our salvation. Mark chapter 10, verse 31, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served you by going to the cross and by suffering for your sins. He purchased for you forgiveness of sins. He purchased for you perfect righteousness. He purchased for you a new heart, a regenerated heart. He purchased for you a new life. He purchased for you reconciliation with God. He purchased for you even a place in his family as a child of the living God. Not only that, by his death and by his resurrection, he became the source of your faith. He became the source of all your good works. He is the vine, you are the branches. He is your servant for salvation. He is your servant for your growth and godliness. He is your servant for your good works. Humble yourself. Renounce all your notions of self-righteousness. He owes you nothing. You owe him everything. At your best, you are simply unworthy servants. A worm that God loves so much that he sent his son to die for you as we pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving such a worm as I. Oh, Lord, drive us deep in our humility. And I'm reminded of how James says, you will lift us up. Lift us up, Lord. Lift us up um, that we might do um, mighty acts of service for you and your kingdom, that you might be glorified and that we might be nothing. We ask in his name. Amen.